Hello, this is Nun Gomes for the Academic Observer on Economics, Business and Finance. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about the global energy crisis, uh, its implications caused by the COVID-19 pandemic, all the way to the climate changes and net zero policy making. Now, I've divided it into five different sections, which will be specified in the description. So make sure to check that out to navigate yourself uh, between what interests you, because this is quite a comprehensive one. Uh, We'll be looking uh, from everything, from uh, geopolitics of the energy crisis, a benchmark price, uh, for energy commodities, the impact, both positive and negative, uh, caused by renewable energy transitioning on global markets, and a few uh, solutions uh, that we've come along uh, for the longer term ahead, like nuclear energy, nuclear fusion, and other decarbonization techniques. And then I'll close off with an eight-minute recorded talk uh, with a social scientist regarding geoengineering and her opinion on decarbonization perspectives held by many environmentalists. Megawattageddon, gas apocalypse, energy astrophe. These are the words used by journalist correspondent Sophie Meller to describe the energy supply crunch experienced in the UK because after all, uh, she claims that it is in this European nation that the genesis of this crisis began and it is this outcome that represents what Sophie Meller calls a dystopian perspective of what happens when a country that's rightfully trying to pursue cleaner and renewable energy sources is instead forced to rely on high-priced natural gas just to survive, to provide that basic necessity of energy consumption for its economy and households alike because as we all know energy utility and output are key pillars for society today now this outcome it represents a cautionary tale for the rest of the world it showcases how sometimes green energy transitioning can unfortunately go wrong if it's not planned accordingly also due to the push for esg standards around the world but for UK's case, the, the fast decommissioning of their coal power plants and other non-renewable energy sources, as well as their low LNG reserves, referring to liquid natural gas, caused them to become indirectly or directly, depending on the perspective, more dependent on foreign gas markets as the only suitable alternative should their renewable productions fall short. And well, the inevitable happened. Earlier this summer, the UK had its wind power generation outputs fall from 25% of of the UK's energy makeup to a mere 7%. That leaves them with a discrepancy of 18% loss in energy supply generation as the North Sea winds slowed down. And so they had to turn their attentions and quickly to other energy sources that are foreign, such as the Langlet Norwegian or the Nord Stream Russian gas suppliers, just for resort. The only problem with this was that at a parallel level, global markets are normalizing from the COVID-19 pandemic, causing the UK, which is already short on energy output, to compete with many and major European and Asian markets for this limited gas supply offered by Russia and Norway, respectively, all of whom themselves are refilling their own reserves due to natural gas shortages and expectations for winter time. Now, what is the result from this? Well, natural gas futures have shot up by over 500% on average just in the European continent, despite their high dependency of this inelastic commodity. Now, with this limited supply of natural gas, anticipation by governing officials is of course key to tamper these sort of scenarios, largely because of the imprudency of this renewable energy transitioning, there has been a snowballing effect on global markets, not just for natural gas, but for oil, coal and other energy sources too. So moving on from the UK's supply chain and forecasting talk, let's now look at the global markets for energy commodities. I'm hopeful that by now it's no longer a surprise to hear that Europe has severe deficits in their gas storages. The UK's case is just one example of that. 
Now add this to the worries given by climate models that the world will face stratospheric warming events in the coming months and you've gotten yourself a freezing winter time for the countries in the northern hemisphere that don't have enough energy supply for households to heat themselves or energy supply for manufacturers to increase their productivity. These are the concerns for a few countries in Asia and North America, but it's the European continent that has taken the biggest hit. And well, this translates directly to what we see, for example, in the Netherlands. I'm currently looking into the NYME, the New York Mercantile Exchange website, and it shows me the Dutch TTF for natural gas futures and their wholesale price surpassing the 100 euro mark for the first time ever. Now, for those that don't follow the commodity prices, that's approximately an 800% increase in price compared to last year, which is, again, ridiculous at best. But we don't have to just look at natural gas. Let's so we can see crude oil, for example, and their rise has been rampant as well. And you can see this by looking at any of their CFDs for oil around the world, be it the WTI, West Texas Intermediate, uh, Brent from the North Sea uh, in Europe, or Dubai crude from the Persian Gulf. All of these benchmark oil prices have risen above the $80 mark per barrel. Now, uh, personally, the reason why I stress with this surge in oil prices uh, particularly is because of oil uh, as a primary energy source for the world uh, poses existential threats because the increase in their price will have a cascading effect in the world's supply chain and will present definite inflationary pressures. That is something inevitable in present times. And so when you've got aggravated costs for natural gas and oil and your renewable energy alternatives are too unre unreliable and energy dilute, as you saw with the UK's case, you'd have to turn your attention to coal as a last resort. Uh, now, just to clarify, coal usage is very underrated since it covers two-thirds of energy generation and steel manufacturing around the world. But yes, with the Climate Change Institution, IPCC, and Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary General, urging uh, for a heavy reduction of coal usage, one would expect coal to be uh, literally used as a last resort uh, for advanced continents and have uh, they have better av availability and ability uh, to to invest in various different energy sources, right? Well, that's not really the case. Uh, in the run-up to this publication, and completely ignored by news outlets, uh, is the steady ascent of coal prices too. They've hovered the record high $250 uh, price per metric ton. That's about four times the price that we saw in September, and a 20% increase since October 10th. By the time I'm recording this, that's just a few days ago, and this is crazy in all fronts. Now, this happens, of course, due to the resurgence of demand post-pandemic, but also the shaky decarbonization transition by major economies. When you look at supply side, we can also attribute the fault uh, partly to the Chinese thermal plants for coal, since China is the largest exporter of the commodity and also depends heavily on it for domestic use. Now, in the mix of all this energy chaos, there has been very few countries in Europe playing the energy game relatively well, and we're going to start by looking at France. Journalist François Bopé calls it an ongoing amorous relationship between the French and nuclear energy. Yes, President Macron has pushed for the commissioning of 14 new nuclear power plants and claims that nuclear power availability is, and I quote, the best proven worth it for its output at a time of conflicting energy prices and unreliable renewable energy remains, which are still currently both difficult to store and volatile too. 
close quotation. And it's their pursuit for nuclear that has essentially protected them from what is happening elsewhere in Europe. For those like myself that are very interested in a future led by uranium are in the exploration and nuclear energy uh, through nuclear fusion, for example, you'd know that this energy outlook holds the highest capacity factor from all other sources of energy since they generate maximum power of more than 93% of the time during the year. That's twice what natural gas and coal supply and approximately four times what renewable energy offers. Now with the breeder reactor technology program being held also with uranium-235, there is potential that the current uranium reserves could possibly provide power for humanity for billions of years to come which makes nuclear sustainable uh, even though uranium is a finite resource. Now, if energy supply uh, is essentially unlimited, as is the case uh, for this experiment, that means that energy prices will presumably go to zero, free for use, and that's potential and progress right there. It would basically exclude all other sources of energy, renewable or non-renewable, um, and just sustain for itself and provide energy for the rest of the world free of charge. Now, despite the pitch of providing limitless clean energy to the world, achieving nuclear fusion as of now is still quite a far from reality due to its costliness and complexity. So let's put it aside and, and try to ask ourselves the next question. How can we supply progressively larger amounts of energy output to meet world demand in a sustainable way? Because reducing energy consumption for the sake of climate change is not something equitable in present times, uh, at a time where we're advancing so much technologically, economically, financially, socially. Uh, I'm not saying climate change is not important to be reduced. Yes, it is, but not if it also drags down energy consumption. Now, Holly Jean, uh, an environmental social scientist, singles out current decarbonization affairs as intangible to the world and provides uh, two scenarios for how her United States should deal with these problems. Now, the common thought scenario held by environmentalists is one that involves going fully renewable and using green hydrogen to decarbonize the process of installing these renewable facilities, she says, which would require the land of approximately six U.S. states for wind power generation and the size of West Virginia for solar power generation. This is, of course, to make the U.S. Uh, energy makeup completely renewable. Now, not to mention the carbon footprint from this, which would be the size of Rhode Island too, she adds. An alternative for Gene would therefore be following Bill Gates' plan to provide carbon-free powered nuclear plants. In total, uh, 250 of them would be required to cover the American energy makeup. Now compare uh, both strategies. I mean, wind power farms require 100 times more land to produce the same energy output as the nuclear plant. Now, keeping in mind that nuclear energy production is also a clean energy. Uh, but yeah, besides this plan, she also partnered with magazine The Zine to present a decarbonization report called Carbon Revolution, where she suggests many interesting geoengineering strategies that would enable the world to still produce with non-renewable and carbon emission in commodities in a sustainable way. These projects they range from using the ocean bed to store carbon dioxide for plankton fertilization, fossil fuel regeneration and alkanization, all the way to implementing aerosols from the stratosphere to block excesses of sun light, uh, this way inhibiting global temperatures from rising. Uh, this is again another incredibly effective strategy to tackle our all shared climate concerns. And while for some these ideas are simply mitigation deterrents, the idea that these technologies of removing carbon footprints are is simply a strategy to delay green energy transition, 
or reduce commitments for such. That is simply not the case, she defends, because uh, in a way we're not impacting the energy prices as we're seeing today by going fully a renewable. It's just not something equitable or feasible today. So I'll finish this long episode off uh, with Holly Buck herself speaking on the subject at hand for those interested. Uh, this last part of the episode is truly my take on how we can find new alternatives to productively reduce climate change, which is the most pressing issue of our generation. This was Noon Gomes for the Academic Observe on Economics, Business and Finance. I hope you guys enjoyed listening to this as much as I did recording it. And thank you uh, for your patience. Now I'll pass the mic to Holly Buck. Very, very good, big pleasure to have you. So is this why you wrote after geoengineering, uh, climate tragedy, repair and restoration? Have we finally run out of options or run out of time? No, um, I think it's important to say that we're not out of options. It's more clear than ever what we need to do. The, the challenge is that we have to build renewable energy infrastructure at basically unprecedented rates. At the same time, we need the material reality to match this changing sentiment. And right now we still have this production gap. Um, there's a report you can all read called the production gap report. And so it looks at this gap between um, what countries and companies are planning to produce and what's needed to stay with this 1.5 degrees Celsius pathway. And so um, countries would need to decrease fossil fuel production 6% a year over this decade, but they're currently planning to increase production 2% a year. And so there's this divergence that grows. So even though we've kind of had this realization socially and it's rippling out into investment, it still isn't quite there yet. So I don't think it's safe exactly to bet on this renewable future unfolding the way that we want it to. It still might. Um, it's just not a certain thing. And, and you think this kind of technology should be implemented very selectively and maybe even temporarily, no? Only with some like hard to decarbonize products like, you know, you mentioned before, if we're talking about cement, um, steel, plastic, aviation fuel uh, that have no zero carbon replacements or until they have them or we learn not to need them so much because even in the best possible worlds, like all these uh, different materials will still make up to 20 to 30% of emissions. Basically, people used to think, I mean, Let's say it this way. It's always going to be a political and an economic question at the same time as it's a technical question about what's really hard to decarbonize. So, um, you know, I think we can get these leftover emissions down below 20 or 30 percent. At least I hope so, because we have laws, for example, in New York State, where I'm speaking to you from. Um, our law says that we can only have 15% be left over. We need 80, 85% decarbonization. And then still some people say, well, that's not enough. It should really be lower. So let's think for a minute about what's really technically challenging. Um, basically, you can think about four main buckets. One is electricity. So we know how to generate a ton of renewable energy. The, the challenge here is having firm electricity, meaning that when the sun's not shining or when the wind's not blowing, do you have enough storage? So here, the storage part is um, the technically challenging part. But, you know, there's more and more ideas about how to do this. Some people are thinking about green hydrogen, um, as a way to, to fully decarbonize uh, the electricity sector. On the other hand, some, that's still um, some local air pollution from combusting hydrogen. So this is one area that's challenging. Another is industrial emissions. There's just some industrial processes that require high temperature heat. Um, so, but a lot of these can also be, you know, carbon capture and storage has a really important role for decarbonizing the industrial sector. So that 
those, those are difficult, but actually possible to decarbonize all the way, I think. Um, the, the other things, though, are transportation and agriculture. Transportation, of course, we have electric vehicles and a lot of ambitious targets and bans. And I think for cars, it's possible to fully decarbonize, but long haul aviation and shipping are still technically difficult. And then in terms of agriculture, there's a lot of um, greenhouse gas emissions from fertilizer and you know different cultivation processes. So can you get that all the way down to zero? Probably not with the things we have on hand right now and the time frame we need. You think it can be done on time, even though we're talking about maybe five to 10 years, like margin to actually get it working, no? Um, even from your own uh, numbers, which, which is kind of interesting because, I mean, given the fact that even in 2020, which it is true, there was this crazy fires that I guess uh, changed a lot of things, but we, we stopped industry even in China for, you know, a couple of months. And yet the cut down on emissions was not, was not that impressive. No. Were you surprised about that after writing and researching the book? I wouldn't because I don't see the evidence of our social system changing that quickly to date. Now it's possible because social systems are not linear you can have unexpected shifts in how people think and in culture, but, um, but that's, that's why I believe it's really important to research and develop carbon removal technologies because they can give you a little bit of flexibility in this. They give you spatial flexibility because if it's really hard to decarbonize in one area, then you have another area that can remove emissions. Um, that's really important and from a justice perspective as well. And it also gives you some temporal flexibility too. So now we can remove emissions that were emitted, you know, in the past potentially. Um, which is also a dangerous thing because the risk is that people say, okay, well, we'll just admit now, but we're going to remove it in 2070 or 2080. So you have to be really careful with this temporal flexibility, but I think we need to, to recognize it as a source of flexibility. Um, so that's why I think we should be putting so much more research and development into industrial carbon removal techniques. I also think we should be researching solar geoengineering, although hopefully, <laughs> hopefully people won't need to go, go down that road. Um, so on the regulatory side, what do you do? Maybe you have different caps for each sector. Um, you know, there's been a lot of cap and trade systems discussed and, um, this is how a lot of markets work already. I think that though, another thing that we need, um, in our regulatory approach is something like a carbon take back requirement, which some, um, organizations and academics have been discussing that if you produce a ton of carbon, you're obligated to remove a ton of carbon. So focusing that more towards the point of production rather than the point of the point of combustion. But one thing that it's it's important to understand that this decarbonized world, you know, a country like the U.S. or regions like Europe has an advantage actually geopolitically in this world. So I, you know, I think it's important that we acknowledge that when we talk about these types of goals because these exit strategies are going to be different for each country and they're going to have different costs for each country. There's a lot of countries out there that rely heavily on fossil fuel production for their economy, for their government budgets. Um, and so we need to think about this problem, not just say, okay, New York or California or the US, we're not there yet on the US level, but you know, it's not enough to just say, okay, we've done a good job. Everybody needs to do like us. We need to think about the whole planet here. I think that with climate change, it's a very grave situation, but it's something that's going to be with us for a very long time. So I'm worried about introducing emergency 
language um, because it, it's something that requires decades long planning, really a, a dedicated process, not just a single emergency. Thank you. Thank you, Holly, for being here uh, with us today. And very especially, thank you for that book. It has been, you know, uh, almost life changing for me because I had a very, I think like most of the people in the audience, I had a very specific idea of what geoengineering was and could be. And I think you definitely made me change my perspective quite a big deal. And uh, I want to maybe keep this one thing that you said a few minutes ago as a, as a closing argument for this debate, which is that what we need is a shared vision, a shared narrative of what is necessary. This is something that we seem to have a lot of trouble with uh, that doesn't that should not cost a lot of money uh, but definitely there are technologies on the way right now and i do agree with you with, that we should chop them up and make them public <laughs> so um thank you again for your um uh, for your amazing um expertise and your generosity and your time and i'm so looking forward to read your next book thank you so much marta and everybody who asked questions it's been a pleasure.